so I'm not the hot husband. I've been robbed. Help me, Lord. It's such a pleasure to, to share with you today. Uh, it's been a, you know, I was terrified to do this, not because of what it is, but uh, because I'm, I feel fairly competent, but I'm terrified because of the responsibility. This is an awesome thing we're talking about. And I shared in class this morning that when we stand up to speak for God, you better be sure you know what you're talking about. Too many people confuse their ideas of what the scripture says, and it leads people to trouble. So that's why I felt uh, I've been feeling this way. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord for your word. I pray that these feeble words that I speak, that what we will see is not a demonstration of intellect or eloquence, but what we will experience is the teaching of your Holy Spirit guiding us and giving us information and inspiration to follow you all the way. Give us attentive ears, Lord, as we wait for your presence to consume us. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everyone said amen. So, are you pickled? What a strange title of a message. I, I have to think about that one. Baptism in the Holy Spirit and pickle. <laughs> but have you ever noticed that if you're walking down the street, you can pretty much tell a person who has had too much alcohol to drink? You don't even have to get too close, but there's a waft of, whoa. Now, my father was an alcoholic, so my wife would tell you that even if I saw a person at a distance who is alcoholic and display the symptoms, I can actually smell it. It's the strangest thing. It's such a profound impact upon me. And I thought about that in terms of pickling, because in the Caribbean, we would say when someone is really drunk that they're pickled. Right? So what are you pickled in? Is the question. I know what you're pickled in, because of the aroma that is spread by your life. Right? Perhaps this is why Paul writes in Ephesians, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So a drunkard is controlled by his drunkenness, and you can smell them from a mile off. What are you controlled by? And what can people smell on my laugh. Important questions. We're continuing this study then on what it means to have a spirit-filled life or the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Uh, yesterday we talked briefly 
Uh, it's briefly because, believe me, this material can cover an entire semester of work. Uh, but we discussed briefly that baptism in the Holy Spirit is an experience that is subsequent to salvation. It builds upon salvation. It continues and intensifies the work of the Spirit begun at salvation. It leads us into a deeper experience of God, and it equips us for uh, effective Christian living and kingdom service. I point out to you again that this is the model that we're using to talk about the drawing work of the Holy Spirit. That which we call salvation is more than just fire insurance. Someone say, more than just fire insurance. Yeah, I see. It's not just your get-out-of-hell-free card. This is a life in God. The God who hovered over creation wants to hover over you. The God who infuses all of life wants to infuse you too. This is the goal of the Christian life. Salvation is just not a matter of uh, getting your soul right with God, as we like to say. It is much more than this. But I want to point out another illustration here, and this is thanks to my uh, brother Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. We had a, a conversation. Uh, you know, you kids know, well, you know this. I'm sorry to call you kids, you're not kids. Uh, but you ever dropped a menthos into a, a pop bottle? What do you call it here in Minnesota? Pop or soda? Pop. Okay. All right. All right. If you're in Texas, it's all Coke, right? So what kind of Coke do you want? What? Anybody from Texas? No Texans among us? Okay, maybe, sort of. <laughs> oh, I see, I see that hand. Well, whether it's pop or Coke or soda, when you drop a menthos into this container, what happens? There is a gushing forth. There's a release of this kinetic energy, a release of this power. This is what I'm talking about, right? The baptism in the Holy Spirit. The spirit-filled life is a, is a rush, is a gushing forth, is this releasing of the power of God in the life of the person. Notice something very important, though. Where was the pop? Already in the bottle. Sometimes our concept of spirit baptism is that somebody out there is jumping on us to do something to us no, my friend, you already have the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. And what happens in this thing that we call spirit baptism is an eruption, both an eruption and an eruption. Yeah, there's a difference, and you can Google it. E-R-U-P-T-I-O-N, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. There's a distinction there to be made of this power and this presence that is already in your life. So I want you to, to think about those, those categories as we move towards what I promised, right? A Pentecostal account of baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is where it gets weird because we start to talk about tongues. Yeehaw! And the perception is that only these crazies who are in the hills of Appalachia. They say Appalachia, not Appalachia, okay? <laughs> Who's from Appalachian district? I heard a brother say Appalachia. All right, you resemble that remark, right?
And somehow we compare crazy Uncle Louie, and every denomination has crazy Uncle Louie, with the best of another denomination. And so sometimes as Pentecostals, we have this insecurity because, boy, it got some weird, you know, you know when the music starts. There's somebody, somebody's got to get a flag and run around the church. <laughs> and then got these people doing this weird stuff, man. It's like, whoa, what's going on, man? Chill, right? And, and, and so when we talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit, we start to associate baptism of the Holy Spirit with things that we may be embarrassed by. And one of those things, of course, is tongues. But we got to be very careful, though, to separate the excess and the crazies, and there are some crazies, from the reality. So, a Pentecostal account of baptism in the Holy Spirit, or, as I like to call it, I ain't afraid no ghost. <laughs> My wife forbade me from wearing the t-shirt. I was going to buy one, and she said, absolutely not. <laughs> but maybe next time. <laughs> Who are you going to call? <laughs> Come on, you know the song. I was there the first time. The first one was better, but not by much. <laughs> All right, so I'm not afraid of any ghost. A Pentecostal account of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, there are two issues that we engage. We can't engage both of them completely. Uh, so I'll focus on the first what is the connection between tongues and spirit baptism? And let me say here that while I like to preach this, today I probably will end up more teaching this than preaching this. And there's a reason why. Um, many of you are not required to take our Pentecostal Distinctives course. And so sometimes what happens as you go through our curriculum, yes, you'll get it from place to place within the curriculum, there really is no single place where you can get this directed teaching uh, about this concept. So bear with me. This is much more than I would typically give in a sermon, but I think it is beneficial for all of us because we're trying to provide for you a framework and a defense for what you believe, because, as I said yesterday, if all you can do is say it was better felt than told, your children will dismiss it. I guarantee you. Is that too harsh? Okay. All right, so let's talk about tongues. A glossa, of course, is the Greek term for tongues, and by extension, it came to mean any kind of a language. In the New Testament, it's paired with the word lalein, which is to speak. So we get a technical term from this, glossolalia. Everyone say glossolalia. Right, so that's a technical term. Right. So when we say speaking in tongues, we mean glossolalia. And what is that? It, is, it refers to the spirit-given ability for us to be able to speak languages that we have not learned. This occurs about 26 times in this way in the New Testament. The different types of tongues, and Paul mentions these in 1 Corinthians. Human languages. He even mentions angelic languages. Later on in 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about spiritual languages. And maybe angelic languages and spiritual languages are the same. I don't know. 
He also mentions about speaking in tongues, but also singing in tongues. By the way, if you want an interesting study, and this again is for extension for those of you who are interested, study the history of the Gregorian chant. You might find some things interesting. If you, and if not, come talk to me. We'll, I'll set you in a, uh, in a direction. So spoken tongues and sung tongues. So this is what it is. What do tongues do? Now, this gets really heavy and deep. We'll focus today on the top line, languages as evidence or sign of spirit baptism, which is the primary metaphor we find or the primary way it's used in the, in the book of Acts. But 1 Corinthians 12 also talks about tongues, but tongues as an enduring gift. And this, I'm not going to spend time here today on this. But it's important for us to understand that there is a difference between tongues or languages as sign and languages as enduring gift. Be aware, though, there is legitimate diversity within Pentecostalism on this very question. It's not a question of in or out. It's just a diversity of opinion. But there are other ways that tongues are used that we never mention in Pentecostal circles. That I'll just briefly. Language or tongues is sacrament participating in the divine in a way that is supra-rational, that is mysterious. That is a way that tongues is used in scripture. Tongues as kenosis, now yeah, this is, this is theology. Yeah, it is theology. I love it. Yes. Praise the Lord. Kenosis. Come on, theologians, help me out here. <laughs> what is kenosis? Kenosis is self <laughs> Thank you. I had to beg for it, so it's not, it doesn't count. Kenosis, what is kenosis? It is self-emptying. So how is tongues self-emptying? Think about it. You're speaking to someone, a language that you do not understand. You're vacating your cognitive processes for the sake of the one who hears. That is kenosis. Uh-oh, I just felt a preaching coming on. Help me, Lord. Uh, this is why I get really angry when the gift that was meant to bring people together, meant to be a sign of our surrender, becomes a point of our pride. How ridiculous is this? You have nothing to do with it, but yet you hold tongues as a badge of honor. Oh, I'm I speak in tongues more than you all, so I am better than you. Nonsense. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Kenosis. Tongues is kenosis. Self-emptying. Please be aware. When we speak in tongues, we are surrendering ourselves to God for the sake of someone else. And all that is involved in that, my own personal pride, my own sense of myself, all that is sacrificed because I'm serving. But language is equalization, right? Fascinating thing about tongues is that it is God who provides the tongues. And on the day of Pentecost, when these tongues were spoken, people from outside of Jerusalem, far off, could actually hear God speaking to them. Isn't that powerful? 
God is interested in everybody. But the last one is fascinating. Tongues as the reversal of Babel. What happened at Babel in Genesis 11? God sent tongues to do what? Separate and to divide. Now on the day of Pentecost, God sends tongues to do what? To unite. To unite. What was done illegitimately at Babel is now done legitimately in Acts 2. Or another way to put this, what was done as a way to deal with man's sin and pride at Babel, now God reverses that on the day of Pentecost and does it right for us so that now we can be participants of what God is doing. So we're going to focus then tongues as, or language as a sign and evidence but we have to begin with some basic affirmations. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a football. Right? To you, well, you guys don't. <sighs> Tough crowd. I'll tell you why. Because there are certain ellipses that you, you don't get. Because you're young. <laughs> but you're going to get revenge later on. Trust me. You'll get revenge. So, all scripture is equally God-breathed. Right? A basic affirmation. That means the stories in Scripture can and do teach theology. True? Where would it be without the creation story? It is a story, but it is theology. Acts, therefore, can be read. Sorry, uh, Acts, therefore, can be and is both theology and history. It's a very important point. Those of you who are doing advanced work in this, you need to read uh, Roger Strongstadt. You might have done it already. Charismatic Theology of St. Luke, but you also need to read I. Howard Marshall, Luke, historian and theologian. Very important work. But scripture must also be read within, or always be read within the wider context of the writer. And so these stories must be kept as a part of a wider narrative. Now, Pentecostalism has been variously accused as being an experience looking for theology. Right? But I would suggest that theology is already embedded deep in the narratives of the experience of the earliest church. It is there. So, where do we find this? We'll find this in the next slide, but this slide helps us to see something very important. That the Holy Spirit's work is holistic and is part of our relationship with God. I have words like new birth, enlivenment, new mind, enlightenment, new life, ennoblement, and new power. These are dimensions of the Spirit's work. So the point of this slide really is to demonstrate to you that baptism in the Holy Spirit is not the first time that you would have encountered the Holy Spirit, that if you are a Christian, you are already in that process, already on that journey with God, who wants to now take you to another place, another dimension. All right, so let's jump into this. What are some basic affirmations about the Holy Spirit? Well, the first is that the climactic uh, events of the day of Pentecost form a pattern for spirit experience. 
Acts chapter 2 is vital. In fact, Pentecostals derive the name Pentecostals from the text, Acts chapter 2, which says, on the, um, on the day of Pentecost, when they were all in one accord or were in unity, there was a sound of this rushing mighty wind. Now, I'll read that later on so you, that you'll get the context. But Acts 2 is pivotal. There's a pattern here. Acts 8, Samaritan Pentecost. Acts 9, Saul and his transformation to become Paul. Acts 10, Cornelius' household, which you mentioned yesterday. Acts 19, the Ephesian disciples. When you read these all together, there's a pattern and there's a shape to this spirit experience that we call baptism in the Holy Spirit. So then what is that shape? What is that gestalt, as they would say in German? What's that pattern? Or, or That pattern, my friends, is this. That there is an experience in God awaiting every believer that is logically, but not necessarily chronologically, subsequent to salvation. There is something more. There is something else. Yes, you are saved. In fact, in the story of Acts, Acts chapter 8, when Philip goes to Samaria, by the way, who was the first evangelist to Samaria? Uh, you might think so, but you're wrong. The Samaritan woman. John chapter 4 is just as potent as John chapter 3. Uh, that's just my feminist re response here. Take with it what you will. Uh-oh, I've lost half my crowd. <laughs> if you need me to explain that, you come see me, I'm at Lichty. If you can bear the walk. But in Acts 8, what happens there? Philip is preaching. Miracles are taking place. There's a sorcerer who comes up and says, hey, no, and he's confounded, and he comes to faith. What else happens? They get baptized, and they believe in the name of Jesus. But they have to call for the apostles. The apostles come down to do what? To lay hands on the people so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. There is subsequence there. The belief that all we have is just a rational, I accept Jesus into my heart. That is the start, clearly, but that's not all there is. There is subsequence. Everyone says subsequence. This subsequence shows up in the life of Jesus as well. Luke 1 and 4. He grows up, but he does not begin his mission until when? The Spirit of God descends upon him. And then he says in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news. So there is subsequence, but it's not necessarily chronological because in Acts 10.44, while Peter is preaching, boom, people started speaking tongues. What do we make of this? But I think sometimes it can be simultaneous or nearly simultaneous. If I had, to, if I had a, a head mic, I would show you what I meant by that. In fact, let me try it. Here's if it makes too much noise. I actually made two sounds, but the sounds, <laughs> it's all right, I'm not nervous. 
But the two sounds are not simultaneous. They only sound so, the appearance of it. I think something like that is what's happening in Cornelius' household. The moment they believe and they exercise true faith, they receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. I wish it were so easy for all of us. I really do. Now, point number two, though, in this pattern is that this experience is separable, but not entirely distinct from salvation. This experience, thirdly, is available to all believers. What does Peter say? Peter says, this gift is for you and for your children, to those who are near, are far off, and as many as the Lord your God should call. Tongues, or, or this experience in baptism of the Holy Spirit, is available to all believers. Lastly, and very importantly, tongues are this significant, what I call a significant corollary to the experience. So what do I mean by this? This is what? It says in Acts chapter 2, and I'll read from verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. As the Spirit enabled them. Do you see that there? Acts chapter 2 is crucial. Why? Because it is the key event of the book of Acts. Everything points to it, and everything leads from it. Here's the thing. You know, we tend to think that the resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in the New Testament, and it is. It is. But how do we know where Jesus went? How do we know that Jesus really was resurrected? There were theories that he kind of, he swooned and he got up and he went down to, to, to India. How do we know? How do the disciples know? Well, one answer is that they saw him. But was it really Jesus or some kind of apparition? Then it gets to, okay, well, we actually saw him ascend. Well, did we see him ascend or not? Was it really a spirit? How do we know that he really ascended? Where did he go? And that answer is given by Peter on the day of Pentecost. We know he was with the Father because he poured out the Spirit in accordance with the promise that he made. And because we heard and saw the demonstration of the Spirit, because I am able to say this is that. I know for sure that Jesus ascended to the Father. That ascension then gives meaning to the resurrection. That resurrection gives meaning to the cross. That cross gives meaning to the life. That life gives meaning to the entire incarnation. They're all connected, and the day of Pentecost becomes pivotal in understanding this. Every time you speak in tongues, you are, in fact, declaring that Jesus rules to the Father. That's how significant this really is. It is paradigmatic. It is so important that this looms large in the story of the book of Acts. Unlike some of our narratives today that where our climax is to the end, it's strange that the climax occurs in the beginning, but there's a narrative purpose so that we would know that what happens to the church is because of the Holy Spirit. That is why some suggest that the real name for the book of Acts is not the Acts of the Apostles, but rather the Acts of who? 
the Holy Spirit. And this is how this climax works, how it functions narratively. It forms an ellipsis, an expectation. So whenever you see spirit activity, there are certain expectations that you, you should find. So for example, if I said, hickory dickory, how'd you know that? He read my mind. All right, this is for the old folks now. Same bat time. All right. Man, own, own it, man. Come on, own it. Own it. What does the fox say? All right, all right. I got some people in the house. All right. <laughs> what if I said, God is good? All the time. What we are performing is a form of ellipsis where there's an expectation because of a cultural background. In this case, the expectation is built because of the story. So whenever we read Acts chapter 2, we have to see Acts chapter 2 really as a paradigm, giving shape to the spirit encounters later on. Wow, time flies when you're having fun. What about Acts chapter 10? How did the believers, the Jewish believers, know in Acts chapter 10 that people had been baptized in the Holy Spirit? How did they know that they had received this gift? Verse 46, for they heard them doing what? Speaking in tongues and praising God. I'm rushing. What about Acts chapter 19? These people didn't even know the Holy Spirit existed. And so Paul prays for them. And what happens in verse 6 when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There's a strong, strong case to be made. So, the common phenomenon throughout the story, and each of these stories, and the ellipsis that we could fill in, perhaps, I'm suggesting to you, is that is this phenomenon called glossolalia, languages or tongues. And in fact, it's from these uh, texts and arguments that Pentecostal teach, Pentecostals teach the baptism with the Holy Spirit is a gift of power upon the sanctified life. So when we get it, we have the same evidence that the disciples received on the day of Pentecost, speaking in new tongues. Sounds like a little bit strange English, yes, because it's from the turn of the century, or the turn of the previous century. A man by the name of William J. Seymour, African-American preacher, who was the leader of one of the most important revivals that, that not only helped spawn but help generate much of the Pentecostal movement we have today. The AG position sounds a little more natural to us because it's more familiar language. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is witnessed by initial evidence, or initial physical sign of speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. So, according to our view then, this is the AG view. Tongues are the initial, that is what we see at the beginning, Physical, what we can observe externally, sign or evidence, right, of baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, careful, this concept of sign of evidence, it points to the reality, but it is not the entirety of the experience. Tongues are important, but they're not just a sign. Or, sorry, they're, they're only a sign. And it's not the only sign. Does that make sense? Thus, the canon must be, if you have initial evidence you must, or initial signs, you must have subsequent signs. And if you have uh, physical evidence, you need 
non-physical evidences as well. Does that make sense? So, and, and you mathematicians can know the number of possibilities there. So again, tongue speech is important. It is not the only sign. It's not the only sign. What are subsequent signs then? Continued evidence of the Spirit's work in producing fruit, gifts, and effective service. What are non-physical signs? The life of the believer, the interior life. Friends, we are not tongues people. And the worship team can come. We're not tongues people. We are people of the Spirit. We resist vehemently two dangers. The first, collapsing all the Spirit's work into tongues, but also ignoring tongues altogether. And so we're back to this diagram, which you might get tired of eventually. The tongues and other external phenomena are the outcropping of the deep work that God does in our hearts and lives. So, remember the old Sunday school joke that the answer is always Jesus? It's always Jesus. That's why I said yesterday we are Christocentric. Because Jesus provides for us the example of the spirit-filled life. So when the skeptics ask you, why, why do you emphasize spirit baptism? And, uh, you say, well, this is the life that Jesus called us to live. When the Pinos, the Pentecostals, the name only, the jaded say, what is this all about? You say, I see this in the life of Jesus. When the open but cautious are asking, are wondering, you say, why not? You answer it by saying, why not? Because the same Jesus who loved you and saved you is the same Jesus who wants to baptize you in the Spirit. Don't be afraid. For the chronic seeker, we say, don't give up. There's an answer coming. In fact, we'll talk about this next, uh, uh, tomorrow. For the Spirit-filled, the answer is still Jesus. Now what? Grow up in Jesus. Look, friends, the world is looking for a manifestation of the power of God. It's thrashing to and fro, and people are looking for the answer in politics, assuming and hoping that some political savior is going to give them the answers to the complex problems. My friends, there's only one answer. It's Jesus. But how do you declare the answer? In the same way Jesus declared the answer. In the power. In the power. In the power of the Holy Spirit. My prayer for you is that as that menthos was dropped into the pop or soda or coke, that God would drop something in your heart that would ignite an eruption. Not only filling you, but spilling over to your world. Where's the power of God? Where's the hope for the world? I'm not some strange humanist. But it's not because I'm good or cute. I try to be. It's because of the power of God living in us. And that same power that Jesus wielded 
is available to us. Worship team.